This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Merry Post-Christmas, which will soon run into Happy New Year. The podcast is back, and I've been accumulating all kinds of stuff, and even though we're in a slower news period, stuff is happening. So strap in. I got to start with this. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs lost another game on Sunday. And interestingly, Skip Bayless of Fox Sports 1 said it's Travis Kelsey's fault because we need to talk about the Taylor Swift distraction. So, look, you know, Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback, got them a late score, but they ended up losing uh, 2014, I believe. And Clay Travis, founder of OutKick, who's an occasional guest on my show, responded to this by saying, the Chiefs are not a good football team, and Travis Kelsey looks like he should retire. He's been worthless the last seven or eight weeks. The double worthless Pfizer shots may have caught up with him, referring to the vaccine. And then either that or Taylor Swift is the Chiefs' Yoko Ono. Maybe both. All right, it's a great line, but it also is ridiculous. Taylor Swift, famous as she is, enchanting as she is, is not responsible for the Chiefs not winning football games. And they've got, I think, two more games to try to turn this around, make the playoffs. Okay, speaking of Christmas, Donald Trump, and I predicted this was going to happen. I mean, it's become like a holiday tradition with him. Uh, set out, sent out um, a post that was, um, shall we say, even more uh, angry, vociferous, you tell me, as I read it to you. Then what he usually does, you know, Merry Christmas even to all the haters. But now he's done. They spied on my campaign, lied to Congress, cheated on FISA, rigged a presidential election, allowed millions of people, many from prisons and mental institutions, to invade our country, screwed up in Afghanistan, and Joe Biden's misfits and thugs like deranged Jack Smith are coming after me at levels of persecution never before seen in our country, three question marks, is called election interference. Merry Christmas. And then there was a follow-up talking about Jack Smith and others. May they rot in hell. Again, Merry Christmas. Doesn't sound like the foreign president's being very merry. Right, Kanye West, I've covered this guy with uh, the whole history over the last year or so of anti-Semitic outbursts. Remember there was a flap about him having lunch or dinner with Trump. Uh, so suddenly, I mean, even as recently as, I don't know, 10 days, a couple weeks ago, 
he was comparing himself to Hitler. And I, I it's just, you know, what this guy has issues. He has serious problems. But suddenly, look what got posted on Instagram. I sincerely apologize to the Jewish community for any unintended outburst caused by my words or actions. Unintended. It was not my intention to hurt or demean, and I deeply regret any pain I may have caused. I'm committed to starting with myself and learning from this experience to ensure greater sensitivity, understanding, your forgiveness is important to me. I am committed to making amends and promoting unity. And you know, he's been suspended from Twitter for anti-Semitic contact. He said, I like Hitler in an interview with Alex Jones was repeatedly suspended from Instagram. But now comes the kicker. He's coming out with a new album. But it was at a listening party for the album. That was the latest thing, where he compared himself to both Jesus and Hitler. Now, because he basically blew up his career, is this a sincere apology? Or is this trying to get a kind of a reset so he can peddle his music. Also speaking of Christmas, Marjorie Taylor Greene on Christmas morning said she and her family were just swatted. And those who are not familiar with the term, and by the way, this happened to uh, at least one other member of Congress and also the mayor of Boston. Swatting is the new doxing, I guess, where... Somebody calls the police and says there's criminal activity going on at so-and-so's house. And a whole bunch of police officers and law enforcement people show up. And of course, it, everything's fine. But you have to go through the hassle. So Green says, this is like the eighth time on Christmas with my family here. My local police are the greatest and shouldn't have to deal with this. I appreciate them so much. And my family and I are in joyous spirits celebrating the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, this was reported by Forbes. She was swatted at least twice uh, in August of 22. She called swatting uh, last year a very serious crime in which the caller wants to have their victim murdered by police. It is a giant abuse of police resources and time. The 911 call came Let's see now. Uh, One o'clock in the morning led them to believe a man had been shot multiple times in the bathtub at Marjorie Taylor Greene's house. I mean, this is serious stuff because if the cops get such a explosive tip, they're going to come in, you know, armed. Then they got a call from the suspect claiming responsibility and explaining his or her motives. It was a computer-generated voice. Upset about Green's stance on transgender youth rights. Hmm. So why don't they arrest this person? Maybe they have. Why aren't these crimes prosecuted? All right. Andrew Sullivan. Story number one. On his Substack, He's doing sort of a year-end wrap-up. And he says, it's a kind of an eye-catching lead. Donald Trump is likely to be the next president of the United States. There's been no comeback like this since Nixon. Trump now leads Biden in the swing states and the country at large. His issues, inflation, immigration, crime, are ascendant again. 
the multiple lawsuits against him have backfired, shoring up his Republican support, lending credence to his largely spurious but rhetorically effective claim that he is the target of a witch hunt. Court ruling in Colorado, which Trump's lawyers have not yet appealed, by the way, but I'm expecting that any day now, uh, likely to have the same effect. He has played this jujitsu masterfully, keeping the focus on himself, bobbing and weaving in a stream of countless lies and threats, taking his authoritarian pitch to new heights. As you can gather, Andrew, who I guess you'd call a moderate conservative right now, not a Trump fan, and yet he's declaring him the likely next president. Dictator on day one sounds like a branding the Democrats might have deployed to destroy him. In fact, it's helping him win the GOP nomination in a landslide. On the GOP's most vulnerable issues, abortion and entitlements, he's inoculated himself. It's his election to lose. The resistance turned out to be one of his greatest assets. And then come a couple of caveats. Well, the New Hampshire primary could change the atmosphere. A Nikki Haley candidacy would be lethal against Biden. But it's beyond clear now that the way to beat Trump is on policy grounds, controlling mass migration, intensifying law enforcement, touting legislative wins like the CHIPS Act, rather than try to disqualify him on grounds that the American public has largely rejected. Joe Biden is too old to be reelected, says Sullivan. Let's be fair. He has his moments of lucidity. He's passed significant legislation beyond anything his predecessor did. He is at heart a decent guy, and that counts for something. He has done his duty in saving us from a second Trump term in 2020, but is now liable to undo that very achievement by running again in 24 and losing possibly badly. He wanders around stiffly and aimlessly. He peers into the teleprompter as if he can't see his script. His voice turns into a whispery mumble whenever he tries to make a point. Reagan won re-election at the age of 73, only to suffer from Alzheimer's before the end of his term. The idea that this 81-year-old man could command the country in four years' time is as delusional as the blithe self-confidence of his team. Sullivan speaking his mind. Here's number two. It's a long, uh, deep dive by the New York Times that is basically an advanced political obituary on Ron DeSantis. And co-authored by Maggie Haberman, it says that boxed in by a base enamored with Trump that has instinctively rallied to the foreign president's defense, DeSantis has struggled for months to match the hype that followed his 2022 re-election landslide. And now with the first votes in the Iowa caucuses only weeks away, January 15th, DeSantis has slipped in some polls into third place behind Nikki Haley's had to downsize his once grand national ambitions to the simple hope that a strong showing in a single state, Iowa, could vault him back into contention. Uh, DeSantis' longtime pollster, one of his closest advisors, Ryan Tyson, has privately said to multiple people, they are now at the point in the campaign where they need to make the patient comfortable. As if the whole campaign is in hospice care. That is a devastating, devastating line. 
Others have spoken of a coming period of reputation management, both for the governor and themselves, after a slow-motion implosion of the relationship between the campaign and an allied super PAC that left even his most ardent supporters drained and demoralized. You know, there was this series of people quitting the super PAC, being fired from the super PAC, the super PAC never backed down. In fact, that turmoil almost too frequent to be believed. The candidate himself, prone to mistrusting his own advisors, did not have a wide enough inner circle to fill both a campaign and a super PAC with close allies, leaving the PAC in the hands of newcomers who clashed with the campaign almost from the start. So this is uh, a um, diagnosis of all the things that went wrong. DeSantis' decision to delay his entry into the race until after Florida's legislative session meant he was on the sidelines during Trump's most vulnerable period. Once DeSantis did hit the trail, he struggled to connect, appearing far more comfortable with policy than people as awkward encounters went viral. Here's an unnamed uh, advisor. You're running against the former president. You're going to have to be perfect and to get lucky. We've been unlucky and far from perfect. So this is also the finger-pointing stage where consultants, advertisers, PAC people are saying, well, you know, he didn't do this and he didn't do that and we tried to do this. And again, this usually comes the day after or in the current Twitterized environment, hours after or maybe minutes after a candidate drops out and says he will continue to fight for America and all that. And Trump filled his upper ranks with veteran consultants that DeSantis had discarded and then was able to use insider knowledge of his idiosyncrasies and insecurities to mercilessly undermine him from his footwear to his facial expressions. Ah, so people who had worked for Ron, now work for Don, and they brought some inside knowledge with them. DeSantis tacked to the right to win over Trump voters, undercutting his own electability case with his hardline stances, including on abortion, where Florida has a six-week ban. President Biden's weak standing tempered any urgency to pick a so-called electable choice. And DeSantis um, initially underperformed in the debates. I'll just add here that he improved greatly in the debates. He now goes after Trump much more forcefully. Took way too long, in my view. He now does a whole variety of media. Uh, you know, he would, when would he ever go on a show like Morning Joe? Whereas he used to just stick to conservative media. But all of these things happened once he had slid in the polls, not just the national polls where Trump is over 50%, but in state polls as well. So he counted on maybe $50 million from billionaire investor Ken Griffin, and he didn't, that Griffin didn't endorse DeSantis or give any money. And they overspent. The PAC had $100 million, and they spent a lot of money and then had to cut back and lay off a lot of people. Running against a foreign president would require an insurgent campaign, but DeSantis had grown accustomed to the creature comforts of the Tallahassee governor's mansion, where a donor had installed a golf simulator for him. 
and he wouldn't give up on private jets. He loved to travel by private jets, which are expensive. So even when they were cutting back, laying people off, shifting remaining staff to Iowa. Okay, and there is also a fairly devastating quote on the record. Stuart Stevens, longtime Republican consultant, Mitt Romney's uh, chief strategist back in 2012, if the great promise of the DeSantis candidacy, uh, candidacy was Trump without the baggage, what Republicans got in DeSantis, says Stewart, Ted Cruz without the personality. Alrighty then. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Number three, lots of war news on two different fronts. So let's begin with this. On early yesterday, the U.S. conducting a new round of airstrikes in Iraq, uh, most likely killing militants and destroying three facilities used by Iranian proxies that have been targeting American and coalition troops. This was in retaliation for a series of assaults, including a drone attack hours earlier by members of Qatab, Hezbollah, and affiliated groups on an airbase in Iraq, according to the NSC. That drone attack injured three American servicemen, one of them critically, says uh, a spokeswoman. My prayers are with the brave Americans who were injured, says Lloyd Austin, the Pentagon chief. So this is a whole cycle of this happening. And when the U.S. doesn't respond, we look weak. The Biden administration looks weak. I understand they're walking a tightrope between not wanting to widen the war and trying to protect our own people. And these are all being fueled by Iran, as is Hamas, as is Hezbollah, as are these other groups. Biden, uh, according to officials, chose this um, particular base in Iraq because it had been used to launch unmanned aerial drone attacks. Last month, the U.S. struck an operations center and a command and control node south of Baghdad. This is bringing back some bad memories. Iranian-backed groups in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen have launched a slew of attacks on American troops and bases. Hasn't hit back against the Houthi militants in Yemen. In addition... Moving now to Russia, Alexei Navalny, Russia's, you know, clearly most famous opposition leader, had been said to have gone missing from the prison he was in. His lawyers were not notified. Nobody knew what happened to him. And now he has come out with a letter. A letter yesterday describing his transfer to a new penal colony in the Arctic. 
And what's fascinating about this letter is that it contains a lot of funny passages. He's trying to show that the Russian dictators have not broken his spirit. I am your new Father Frost. That's what the Russians call their version of Santa Claus. I have a sheepskin coat, a hat with ear flaps. I should get felt boots soon. And I have grown a beard during the 20-day transit. But the main thing is, I now live above the Arctic Circle. Now, he's been in custody since he was detained way back in uh, January of 21 at a Moscow airport where he arrived after spending months in Germany recovering from poisoning by a nerve agent. And I don't think there's much doubt about where that poisoning came from. Navalny has accused the Kremlin of the poisoning. Russia denies it. Yeah, Russia denies a lot of things. Russia denies targeting civilians in Ukraine. This is the site of a former gulag labor camp in the most, one of the most remote regions in Russia, surrounded by tundra and polar mountains. Freezing dark winters gave way to brisk summers with clouds and mosquitoes. And there's not much daylight. Uh, Navalny writes, I don't say ho, 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 but I do say oh, oh, oh when I look out the window where I can see it's night, then evening, then night again. said he hasn't seen much of uh, his new surroundings yet, but that the prison guards are very different uh, than in his last abode. Wearing warm mittens and felt boots, they carried machine guns and were aided by those very beautiful, fluffy shepherd dogs. So you got to admire Navalny, and he's got some incredibly long prison sentence because... Vladimir Putin doesn't want him out there criticizing the Kremlin or certainly running for president. Those elections obviously rigged anyway. Speaking of Putin, a couple days ago, he signaled that he's ready to make a deal. It's kind of a joke on the war in Ukraine. He's been doing this through intermediaries for some months, saying he's open to a ceasefire that freezes the fighting along current lines. In other words, Russia gets to keep all the territory it has captured from Ukraine. Now, that's a lot different than his original expectation, which is that they would take Kiev in a week and Ukraine would cease to exist and be absorbed into the Russian Empire. But he'd give that up. I don't think this is a serious offer. These terms are unacceptable to Ukraine. But I do think the Russian army has suffered horrendous casualties. And I don't think, say that with any sympathy because Putin started this unjust war with all kinds of atrocities against civilians, kidnapping of children and other Ukrainians. But, you know, a lot of these are just kids who were drafted and forced to fight. So, according to the New York Times, what Putin's trying to do is keep his options open. Obviously, this war has lasted far longer than he's expected. He just, at least privately, wants to declare victory and move on. Uh, One international senior officer, they say, we are ready to have negotiations on a ceasefire. They want to stay where they are on the battlefield. There's no evidence that Ukraine's leaders, who have pledged to retake all their territory, 
which may ultimately prove to be impossible, I would add, will accept such a deal. Some American officials say it could be a familiar Kremlin attempt at misdirection and does not really reflect the genuine willingness by Putin to compromise. Meanwhile, in a great psychological lift for the Ukrainians, Ukraine struck and basically crippled a large Russian warship in Crimea, part of the territory of Ukraine that was occupied um, by the Russians back in 2014 with cruise missiles in an overnight attack that killed at least one person and could complicate any Russian attempt to seize more Ukrainian territory along the Black Sea coast. They are saying it would be very hard uh, for this warship, which was carrying tanks and armored vehicles, to be repaired because the explosion was so powerful. Now, the Russians have retaliated with missiles in, the, in, in other ways. But if Ukraine didn't have these cruise missiles, it would not have been able to launch this attack. And so it always seems to me, and now, of course, you have the impasse on Capitol Hill, where there's no ability until the border issue is resolved, that would be our southern border, to send any more weapons to the Ukrainians. But when they have weapons, you see what they can do with them. But the Ukrainians have also suffered terrible casualties, uh, as Zelensky is acutely aware. Now, one more journalistic controversy involving the war. So the New York Times has run an op-ed from the mayor of Gaza City, who is, of course, backed by Hamas. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the mayor of Gaza City. His name is Yahya Siraj. And he's describing uh, what journalists have also described, which is the terrible humanitarian crisis in his area. Uh, every story now just says, whether we know the exact figure or not, that more than 20,000 people have died in Gaza. According to the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry, and I'm glad this story in the Washington Examiner adds that this is all; these are all numbers put up by Hamas, but there's no question there have been mass casualties and, and many, 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 many civilian casualties. Siraj faulted the Israeli military for also the loss of Gazan culture, quote uh, from the piece. The Israelis have also pulverized something else, Gaza City's cultural riches and municipal institutions, the unrelenting destruction of Gaza, its iconic symbols, its beautiful seafront, its libraries and archives, and whatever economic prosperity it had has broken my heart. Well, I would just jump in and add that it's Hamas that has made sure that it didn't have much economic prosperity by putting all the money, or much of the money, I should say, into tunnels and weapons and rockets. Uh, the op-ed goes on to ask, why do the Israeli tanks destroy so many trees, electricity poles, cars, and water mains? Why would Israel hit a UN school? The obliteration of our way of life in Gaza is indescribable. I feel like I'm in a nightmare. So there's a backlash among conservatives. Why in the world would the New York Times publish uh, this one op-ed by a highly ranked Hamas official who runs the largest city in Gaza. 
lives of TikTok, saying, Remember when journalists lost their minds and a chief editor had to resign because they ran an op-ed by a sitting U.S. senator, that would be Republican Senator Tom Cotton? Well, now the New York Times is running opinion pieces written by Hamas. Are their journalists outraged? New York Times showing their true colors. But here's the thing. The New York Times undoubtedly has run hundreds of stories and opinion columns. Let's just stick with opinion columns by regular columnists and op-eds that are pro-Israel, that are anti-Hamas. If you believe that James Bennett shouldn't have been fired for running one piece by a Republican senator back in 2020, and you'd be consistent about that, then you have to say to run one piece, let's see, just call him a top Hamas official, but the guy who runs Gaza City, bemoaning the state of destruction there, is one tiny effort to show the other side. I have mixed feelings about this. Guy's a terrorist, or he belongs to, he's very much part of a terrorist organization that launched this war with the most brutal and unimaginable atrocities one can imagine, and kidnapped um, lots and lots of civilians, more than 100 still under the control of Hamas. But I don't know that the New York Times should be crucified for allowing one single op-ed. You may disagree. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, heading back to the campaign. Democrats in battleground states increasingly anxious about President Biden's low approval ratings, worrying that voters' persistent antipathy, there's a newspaper word for you. Uh, I don't want to see people walking around the street saying, I have great antipathy for this. Um, could not only cost the party the White House, yes, but also weigh down those candidates who are sharing the ballot with him. So this is when you get to the party panic. They're saying, look, this is really terrible. Joe Biden may well lose this election. But even what's an absolute tragedy is that I may lose my re-election. Uh, these Democrats fear that the Biden campaign is late in building a strong organization in the handful of states likely to determine next year's election. They, in this Times piece, point to polling numbers showing Biden lagging far behind excuse me, Democratic candidates for Congress in those states and struggling among key groups of voters, including Black and Latino Americans. For instance, in Arizona, Democratic polling has Biden losing Hispanic voters to Trump in Maricopa County, which includes Phoenix, and represents more than 60% of voters in the state. In Michigan, Biden's approval rating is 15 points behind Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. He's lost ground with black and Arab-American voters. I can certainly understand the latter. And in Georgia, officials say the Biden economic message has not broken through to voters, in part because voters have seen uh, Republican Governor Brian Kemp take credit for many of the new projects in the state. Yeah, with federal money. I'm extremely concerned, says Mayor Van Johnson of Savannah, Georgia. President Biden is a man of great character. Certainly, he's a president of great accomplishments, but that is not translating to Southeast Georgia. So this goes on and on. Mayor Johnson says, I don't see any passion, any excitement, nothing. It might be a situation of too little, too late. 
And the Times adds that Biden has a has his party on a winning streak going back to the midterms last year. Number five from the Wall Street Journal. In the wake of calls for the resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay, so this is not an issue that's gone away, as I'll explain in mere seconds, a growing number of faculty members are turning their focus to the other 11 members of the powerful governing board that runs the school. Some faculty are calling for members of the Harvard Corporation to resign or apologize. And one professor has even floated to the governor of Massachusetts a new structure for the school that would give lawmakers the chance to appoint a board member to represent the public interest. Medical school dean Jeffrey Flyer saying they're under pressure, that's obvious. They are the fiduciary body. No one will deny that Harvard's reputation has taken a very substantial hit in the world. It's on their watch that it's happening. It's the oldest corporation in the Western Hemisphere. Members include, you know, former CEO of American Express, president of the Carnegie Endowment, former U.S. Commerce Secretary. It's got an endowment over $150 billion. They serve a six-year renewable term. The board stood at seven people, including the president, from 1650 to 2010 when it adopted some reforms and expanded to 13. One faculty member said the corporation answers only to God. Kit Parker, professor of bioengineering, said the school's at an inflection point. The big question now is, how arrogant is Harvard? And when I say Harvard, I mean the Harvard Corporation. They think this is going to go away? One faculty member citing a carve-out in the Massachusetts Constitution that reserves authority over Harvard to the state legislature, I didn't know this because, you know, it's a private school, has urged Massachusetts lawmakers to install a government official on the board. The governor, Maura Healey, is said to be reviewing it. Now, part of this is being driven by the new discoveries that keep coming drip, drip, drip of new instances of plagiarism by Claudine Gay. And then that's countered by, oh, uh, you know, she's the first black president of Harvard and suddenly, uh, you know, you're nitpicking her to death and you're treating her family and this is all racist, uh, say the head of the NAACP and other outspoken uh, black leaders. But she plagiarized even in her own dissertation. This is back in 97, I believe. And Harvard comes up with these weasel words like, you know, inappropriate attribution and so forth. There is no question in my mind that any student that plagiarized as widely uh, and as deeply as Claudine Gay would immediately be expelled from Harvard. But Claudine Gay, who you know, gave that reprehensible testimony on anti-Semitism to a Capitol Hill committee and then apologized the next day, so badly screwing it up, she was able to survive in the way that UPenn president Elizabeth McGill was not, but then came all the plagiarism allegations. And now the focus on the board that actually runs Harvard and could actually do something about this. Well, I told you I had a lot of stuff saved up and there's some stories I haven't gotten to. But you will hear them tomorrow and in the coming days. So despite the holidays, the podcast is back in action. If you missed Media Buzz last Sunday, many of the segments are online, including my interview with Ted Cruz, lively debate about what he calls the corruption of journalism. I disagree with him on many points, but I let him have his say and 
push back when I needed to. And so, now that my voice is warmed up and I'm getting the rhythm of this thing, I'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.